1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13 in a passage that I'm calling Qualifications for the Deacon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for every man and every woman who serves in this church. Lord, we know that so much of what goes on at church could never, ever take place if it weren't for the dedicated men and women who serve so selflessly. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's wondering, how can I serve? What are my gifts? What are my callings? How can I best use the ministry that you've entrusted to me in order to make ministry delightful? Lord, we're so grateful that we can gather, that we can participate in one another's lives, that we can pray for one another and encourage one another, and that we can also create an atmosphere of love and joy and peace. Lord, we pray that our lives would be marked by joy and good works. And so, Lord, again, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The church requires servants. And again, I thank God for each and every person who, again, selflessly serves in our church. The ruling elders in verses 1 through 7, and now the serving leaders in verses 8 through 12, have spiritual character, and family requirements. The willing servant and the faithful servant is promised great reward in verse 13. Charles Dickens famously wrote, quote, No one is useless in this world who lightens the burden of another. And that's exactly right. The servant's divide the burdens. We as men and women become burden bearers. One of the servants at, at our church 
describes himself, well, he's been described as a lay pastor. And he says, I'm a lay pastor. And someone asked him, what does that mean? And he said, that means I'm the one that they lay the, the burden on me that they don't want to necessarily bear. Whatever they don't want to do, they lay on me. Now, that, that's true to a certain extent. But we divide the sorrow. William Barclay, probably borrowing from John Wesley, said, In the time we have, it's surely our duty to do all the good that we can to all the people that we can in all the ways that we can. That's a perfect description of service, goodness for one another. Everyone is invited to serve. Jesus said, but he who would be great among you shall be your servant in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11. Peter instructions included, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our service is supposed to provide praise to the Lord. The job description that Paul provides Timothy for the servant leaders in the church is sometimes ignored. It's sometimes neglected. And when it is ignored and neglected, it always brings harm to the church. Who can serve in the church? Oddly enough, according to Paul, those who are sincere and worthy of respect in verse 8 and then again in verses 9 through 13. Those who demonstrate personal and spiritual maturity in verse 9. People with proven, that means tested character ability in verse 10. Leaders are faithful to their spouse in verses 11 through 13. And demonstrate Godly character, verses 11 through 13. And like pastors or ruling elders in verses 1 through 7, the serving elders or the deacons are to exercise sobriety. Absent greediness in verse 8. And so there's personal qualifications. Look at verse 8. Likewise, Diakonos, deacons, must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. That first word, likewise, gives us an important clue in how Paul is using the term diakonos, or deacons. Like the ruling elder... In verse 1, where he says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. The person, in verses 1 through 7, or persons, the ruling elders, occupy an office. And like that office, the servers, or the servants, they function in the role of service, but I'm going to suggest to you that they may even occupy the office of servant 
So when we see the term deacon, it's not unusual to interchange that word with servant or servant leader. The servant leader has minimum requirements, but they are important requirements. The deacon assists the pastor and the congregation in exercising various functions that are associated with the way that you do church or how you do church in the future and in the present for that matter. So the word deacon means servant, server, minister. In the very genesis of the community that we call church, it included such mundane tasks as setting up chairs, setting up tables, waiting on tables. And in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, there is this description of the community as they gather together and they minister to one another and they encourage one another and they partake in, in mutual meals and all of that kind of stuff. And then it grew into more complex functions like the administration of the church or the supervision of the distribution of vital resources within the church. So the deacons served under the leadership and supervision of what's called the elders or the ruling elders in whatever spiritual or practical tasks that were required by the church. In the book of Acts, remember in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, a disputation, a disagreement rose up in the church. There was a group of older women who happened to be Hebrew-speaking women and Greek-speaking women. And there was a concern that there was favoritism or partiality that was taking place. And so the ruling elders said to the people, you should choose from among yourselves people who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That would have been an impossible task unless people, other men and women within the church, had proven themselves in ministry and service. So, in part... Their job was to re relieve the ruling elders of certain tasks. But that doesn't mean that the ruling elders aren't supposed to serve. Now, again, in Acts, it says that they were to devote their time to prayer and the ministry of preaching and teaching the word of God in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. But even, again, a superficial reading of the book of Acts reminds us that some of the teachers and preachers served and some of the servers taught and preached. Stephen is described as diakonos, a server, a deacon. He was said to be full of faith and power. It also says that he began to be used by God and did great wonders and miracles among the people in Acts chapter 6 verse 8. And so it would appear that service would sometimes blur into areas of physical occupations 
and spiritual occupation. So at the top of the list, Paul writes that deacons must be reverent. Simnos is the language. I remember when uh, I met with a former famous president. He said, how are you, Reverend Jirasi? I, get, I said, you can just call me Gino. I said, I looked up the word reverent in the dictionary. So it's a title that I don't often use. But the ruling elder and even the servers should be reverent. What in the world does that mean? The word carries with it the idea of being serious. I know what you're thinking. Gino, disqualified. <laughs> it means serious about the things of God. It means honorable. It can even mean respectable. So the idea carrying serious, honorable, respectable in our culture and society, among my police officer friends, I will often use the term solid citizen. This is a person who, for all intents and purposes, look like they can carry on the functions of, in culture, in society. We might say the word meant held in high respect. It's literally the opposite of flippant or not respected. And then Paul uses the term not double-tongued. It's an interesting word. Die, logos. Those of you who are familiar with the word logos, you know it means word or speech. And die means to divide. We, we might say not having a forked tongue. In what sense? It means a person who has one report for one person and another report for another person in an attempt to win favor from both sides. The servant leader must have a reputation for honesty, straight talk. We might think of this another way. The person must not say one thing to a person's face and another thing behind their back. You know about that. That's a fairly easy thing to discern. So the servant leader will often have privileged information about sensitive matters in the lives of the saints. The server gets to know the people within the congregation. And as you get to know one another and minister to one another, this is one of the reasons why people are really reluctant to share their life. If this person knows something about me, what are they, go what are they going to do with that information? Are they going to use it against me? Or are they going to use it in such a way that's going to honor Christ and build up the kingdom? And so the servant has to exercise maturity, integrity, speak the truth, speak it in love. And so like the ruling elder, the servant, read deacon, is not given to much wine. What in the world does that mean? Does it mean 
If you serve in the church, you can never drink. Does it mean rarely drink? Does it mean wine with meals? Does it mean margaritas at Trace Margaritas so that once you've had Trace Margaritas, it doesn't really matter what the food tastes like? <laughs> what in the world does this mean? Whatever else it means, it must mean given to sobriety. It isn't necessarily a restriction that you can never drink under any circumstance, but it must mean that this person is given not to drinking, but to sobriety. It means that the person is clear-headed in their thinking, not greedy for money. And so Paul is making the warning that certain people who medicate with drink and dedicate their life to the acquisition of material things because they're dedicated to drinking and medicating themselves or dedicated to the acquisition of money, they have a divided heart. So there's two things here, a divided mind and a divided heart. The person who's occupied with wine and money will fall into temptations and snares. The point that Paul is making isn't to give a blanket prohibition against drinking or even making money. The servant leader is supposed to be a man or a woman who has a singular judgment and a singular heart rather than clouded judgment and a clouded or divided heart. So there are qualifications personally, and there are qualifications spiritually. Look what the next word says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested, then let, the, let them serve as deacons. It literally could read, then let them serve as servers being found blameless. So Paul is going to list three spiritual qualifications. Let me point them out to you. Number one, he's going to give a doctrinal test. Number two, he's going to give a practical test. Number three, he's going to give a community test. Let's put it another way, a doctrinal test. What does the server believe? A practical test. How do they behave? A community test. How are they seen in the community? Are they, I'm going to use the term, believable, credible? So what does Paul mean when he says holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience in verse 9? By the way, does the mystery of the faith here have anything to do with what we've already learned about the mystery of godliness earlier or even later in verse 16. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. I want you to just read ahead here for just a little bit. 
and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in the world, received up to glory. I'm going to suggest to you that this mystery of faith and the mystery of godliness are connected. They're connected to one another. The mystery of faith is a reference to the revealed teachings. The revealed teachings are everything that Paul has already taught Timothy. The revealed teachings are the sum and the substance of the instructions that have been given, not only by Paul's writings, but I'm going to suggest to you the instructions that have been given in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. In other words, this corpus or this body of revealed information. Paul has already alluded to sound doctrine or healthy teaching. And so the teacher or the servant never invents truth or adds new truth to the revealed truth. The deacon or the server holds, embraces the unchanging truth of the gospel, the unchanging truth of the revelation that Paul has given to us. So the mystery of the faith does not negate the certainty of faith. In the New Testament, when it's talking about a mystery, it's talking about something that was previously unknown, but now is known. It isn't like a mystery that you watch on TV where somebody gets killed and they spend the whole episode trying to figure out who done it. The mystery of the faith means the certainty of the faith that's been revealed. So the servant or the deacon, listen carefully, believes and embraces the body of revealed truth. So just like the ruling elder, the servers in the church believe the truth that the Bible teaches. Now, does this mean that every person in every capacity believes everything exactly the same way? Actually, that's not what it means. For the person who's tempted to believe that this means a body of hidden knowledge or concealed knowledge available only to the spiritually elite undermine the very purpose for having visible qualifications. Paul isn't saying, hey, guess what? There are certain leaders who have certain information known only to them that make them special. Paul is saying, that's nonsense. The ruling elders of your church should believe the body of the revealed information that's given to the Bible, that's given in the Bible. Church leadership isn't a secret society for secret knowledge. I want you to pause for a moment and I want you to consider that phrase. 
holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul wrote about prayer and the power of prayer to accomplish God's plan and God's purpose that the God of the Bible desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You can't grasp or hold the knowledge of the truth unless you believe the truth. Paul wrote, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle in chapter 2, verse 7. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth in chapter 2, verse 7. So again, Paul is speaking of essential doctrine that constitutes the Christian faith. So what are some of these essential doctrines that everybody embraces? Nothing could be more essential than the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. God came from heaven, was born of a virgin, it constitutes the creeds. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived the perfect life that you could never live. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's going to come back to judge the living and the dead. So when you think about these essentials, when you think about the incarnation, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. These are essential doctrines. The deacon can't compromise essential teaching about Christianity. If you serve in the church but believe in reincarnation and, and conjure up the dead and or off you know open up a seance or a some sort of studio where you go i'm going to contact the dead you can't serve here now i want you to just think this through for a minute doesn't it make sense to you that in order to be a pastor in this church or a leader in this church or a server in this church you do you think it's it's wrong for the church to require you to be a christian Good, I got no. Maybe a few people said yes under their breath. But let me just help you with this. Obviously, in order to serve in the church, doesn't it make sense to you that you should be a person who really believes what the Bible says about what it means to be a sinner and how Jesus is our Savior? So, these are the doctrines that are fundamentally necessary to make historical Christianity historical Christianity. Remember, the, the, there's that saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So if the essentials, we have unity, and in, in the non-essentials, we have liberty, it's okay for you to ask, well, again, what constitutes an essential and what constitutes a non-essential? The Bible actually talks about controversial things. It talks about disputable things. It talks about things that men and women of goodwill are free to disagree about. 
all Christian doctrine and teaching are built on the solid foundation of the gospel as it's revealed in the Bible. And if the pastors of the church and the leaders of the church can't solve problems and resolve conflict based on what the Bible says, you're doomed. And so, my life has been devoted to teaching the Bible to the leaders of this church and the servers in the church. The apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. That means set him aside, give him the preeminence, put him number one, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You should be able to explain your belief and your behavior based on what the Bible says. So I want you to, again, now connect the dots. Should a person in the church who serves in the church be a, number one, a believer? Yes. Do you know what that means? That means if we have a musician on stage and they just happen to be the most gifted musician on the planet Earth, but they go, you know what, I'm not a Christian, but man, boy, can I play the guitar, or boy, boy, can I play the piano. You don't get to serve. Is playing the piano or playing a guitar service? Yes. So, what is it that the servant should be able to do? Articulate his or her faith. Can the servant define and defend the gospel? Can the person present the gospel and then urge others to believe the gospel that they themselves have believed in their own heart, in their own life? Can you present the problem of sin and how God is the solution to the problem of sin? Are you able to talk about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? Can you easily defend Christ's deity, his humanity, his ministry, his suffering, his message, his priesthood, his return? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul writes, I don't want you to be ignorant about these important things. Can you speak with ease? about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God? Can you speak about salvation and redemption, about prayer and the spirit, the language of salvation, and hope, the outlook of salvation? So the deacon doesn't simply know the truth, the deacon believes the truth and then lives the truth in his or her life. And what is the outcome of that knowledge and belief and life? The outcome of all of that is what the text, what Paul writes, a clear conscience. You get to serve with a 
clear conscience, not with a divided mind or a divided heart. You get to be a person who says, I really believe what the Bible says about Jesus. So, the deacon's life is marked by biblical understanding and maturity and humility. The deacons, like I said in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, were men, quote, known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That means mature. And so look at verse 10. Tested. But let these also first be tested. Let them serve as servers, being found blameless. I'm going to read the text exactly. But let these also first be tested or proven. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Look what the instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy. He's saying, test first. He doesn't say serve first. He says test first. So imagine someone says, you have a 15-passenger van? You're in charge of the children's ministry. No, you're laughing. I'm hoping you're understanding. That's ridiculous. You're not going to entrust the children to a person who is not tested. In what way? Should the servant be able to articulate their own testimony about Jesus? The answer is yes. Should they be able to articulate essential Christian beliefs? I think that that's part of the important thing that's being discussed. But I suspect that what Paul means isn't simply the ability to articulate what they believe, but that they have a proven ministry of service. The test consists of observation by the ruling elders as they observe the life of the person lived in the crucible of pain and suffering and difficulty and persecution and trouble. A man or a woman who have proven character qualities and family living spiritual gifting, these may serve in the office of the deacon. To put someone in leadership without evaluating their doctrine and without evaluating their life can prove disastrous. And some of you parents have experienced that frustration. How could you have put this person in leadership? And so it's really, really important that like the ruling elder, the server isn't a novice or a newbie. This is why often when you come to our church, we'll say, where did you go to church? Where have you come from? Where, where are you from? Hey, we would like you to sort of attend our church so that we can get to know you and watch you. Now, there could be exceptions. To me, a policy is a flexible guideline in order to get the work done. 
If a person comes from Calvary Costa Mesa or from Calvary Aurora or from Calvary Castle Rock or one of the Calvaries around and you, you, you how long were you there? Five years, 10 years. What did you do? I did this and that. Um, it, sometimes people who have a proven ministry have, can, can come to a place where they can come and, and serve. Don't be alarmed or offended. If the people in the church say, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me what you've done. And so, according to the Bible, you should be able to be rooted and grounded in God's word, spiritually mature, authentically humble, known and respected by your peers, able to minister to people in order to assist the pastor and the ruling elders. Now, pause for a minute. We all face tests. No one has a perfect record. This criteria can't mean never failed and always found faithful. If it meant has never failed, and has always been found faithful, would Peter get to be a leader in the church? No. People have to be given the opportunity to exercise gifts, make mistakes, even before given the title or the responsibilities of leadership. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, the deacon's office is to be used, not just filled, Church officers who are faithful and will acquire a good standing, that means degree, before God and men, and so they're able to further the work of Christ, unquote. And so he says, blameless. In verse 10, but let these first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. What does that mean? Does blameless mean sinless? It can't mean that or everybody's disqualified. If it means sinless, then I have to resign right at this very moment and can't serve in this church. So what does this mean? Here's what I'm hoping. When I say blameless doesn't mean sin sinless, I was hoping you would all go, So what in the world does it mean? It means above reproach. What does that mean? It means there's nothing in the servant's life that Satan can seize and use as a reason to bring accusation against that person, against the church, against the gospel, the outside world, those on the outside of the church can find no reason to refute this person's claim that they know Jesus, they love Jesus. And so this is why, again, if you are a pastor and you commit crimes, then it's probably a good idea that you step down from ministry. The meaning blameless is the same one used in verse 2 to describe the ruling elder. The word, by the way, in the original language literally meant not able to be held. What does that mean? It means in a criminal sense. 
not being able to be held. What? For police officers, imagine you charge a person with a crime, but there's insufficient evidence to hold them. Anyone who's ever watched a crime story understands the concept that it's possible for people to be accused of crimes, but there's insufficient evidence to hold them. That means there's no valid accusation of wrongdoing that can reasonably be made. And so the person can serve as an example to follow. And so again, in order to serve, you should be a person who lives his or her life in such a way that you can serve as an example. And by that, I don't mean like what my PE coach told me in high school. Everyone, look at Geraci. He's an example of what not to do. I'm not talking about a bad example. I'm talking about a good example. So it can't mean simple accusation. Why? Because if it meant simple accusation, then Paul himself, who was accused of all kinds of crimes, would not be able to serve and minister. Did Paul's enemies accuse him of, of a lot of different things? Yeah. Were they true? No. So then there's family qualifications. Look at verses 11 and 12. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. Verse 11 is subject to a lot of different debate. The reason why is because the passage itself I'm going to suggest to you has some qualities of being ambiguous. What does that mean? Look what it says, likewise. That very word, again, serves as a connector. And there doesn't appear in the original language. There's no possessive pronoun in the Greek language. It could read, likewise, women. Because the Greek word for woman or women is gyne. And so it's translated their wives. The text may mean both the translation which I use, the New King James, likewise their wives must be reverent. Is it possible that that's the translation? Yes. Is it possible that it reads likewise women? must be reverent. I'm going to suggest to you that the context seems to indicate that that's probably the right way to think about it. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and, and think what it may mean. Number one, it may mean the wives of the deacons. If that's the case, then that means that the server in the church has to have his or her family in order. It may mean that some scholars argue, again, that the context doesn't fit the meaning, that this is an additional qualification that the, that the servers also have to have wives who meet the same qualifications as their husbands. Put another way. Does this mean 
that people in the church have to have their households in order. I'm going to suggest to you that no matter what else it means, it probably there it seems to carry that idea. I think that the New Testament can make an overall reasonable argument that church leaders have to have their own house in order. Clearly, Paul later is going to argue that, well, he, he already has, that he doesn't allow women to teach or exercise authority. That means occupy the office of the ruling elder. Does this mean that women cannot occupy the office of service in the church? I'm going to suggest to you it can't mean that. If it meant that, then the church is doomed. If women can't serve in the church in the spiritual capacity that's been given to them by God through the Holy Spirit, then, then we shut down. Because I might be so bold as to say that 80% of everything that happens in this church is because of women. And I'm not prepared to be gender conflicted at this point. I actually believe that men are men and women are women. If you want to fire me for that, go ahead. But I want you to think about this. Whatever the meaning, whatever the application we're left with, if it means what I think that it means, that women serve in the church, then it also means that they have the same requirement. They have to be serious, reverent. It's that same word. Remember, it's the same word that was used in verse 8. That means they have to have a reputation for honesty, integrity, spiritual maturity. It carries with it the idea of distinguished, dignified, worthy of respect. And again, then Paul uses the strong word, I think in the context of women, but also I think it has a reference to anyone who, who should serve. It says, not slanderers. That word is nay, or actually there's... Amu, may, diabolos. You know that word. Anyone who speaks Spanish, if I say diablo, what is the word? The it's the devil. Ni, me, diabolos. What in the world is that? It's actually one of the titles of Satan. But it means talebearer, slanderer. Gossip. Again, this is the person who makes it a practice to get into other people's business. They're meddlers. They stir up strife. My wife taught me a new Spanish word. Metite? What is it, Mary? It's a word that means a person who sticks their nose into situations where they don't belong. That's what this word means. It means meddler. 
It means a person who persistently stirs up strife. This is a person who makes mischief. This is a person who generates drama. Some people might think, well, if you're going to be a server in the church, you, you can't be addicted to drugs and alcohol. True. If you're going to be a server in the church, you can't be addicted to drama. You laugh, but I think that that's what this means. For some people, drama is their drug of choice. And if drama is your drug of choice, then the chances are you're going to be unfit for leadership. The presence of disturbance and drama is a red flag. In Proverbs eleven thirteen, it says, A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. Those who talk about others to us will talk about us to others. So there are three basic rules when speaking about others. Number one, is what you're saying true? Number two, is it kind? And number three, is it necessary? If what you're saying is not true, if what you're saying is not kind, and if what you're saying is not necessary, then the chances are you shouldn't say it. My granny was fond of saying, why do dogs have so many friends? She was from Mississippi. She said, because they wag their tails and not their tongues. You had a grandma like that, didn't you? Paul then uses the term temperate. It's the same word that Paul uses to describe pastors in verse 2. The word means moderate. It means marked by appropriate limits and boundaries. Not given to exaggeration or extreme or excess. This word temperate means the opposite of extravagant. And this is why I think that so many people who are extravagant in their behavior really aren't qualified to serve. And Paul says faithful in all things. Paul values faithfulness. Do you know why? Because God values faithfulness. Moreover, it's required in stewards that they be found faithful, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. And by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards we have been entrusted with the mysteries of God. And what are the mysteries of God? It's great is the Lord because the mystery of God is, guess what? God has come to save us in Jesus. He's a forgiver of sin and reconciler of people. The mystery of the gospel is that people can be saved. Their lives can be changed. Their sins can be forgiven. So, do you sometimes or even often say things 
that are hurtful and harmful? Are you constantly saying, I'm sorry? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean those hurtful words. And make no mistake about it, we all make mistakes and we all probably need to say that we're sorry. And we all use hurtful words, but if you say you're sorry and use hurtful words over and over and over and over and over, and there's no respite from your harmful and hurtful words then the chances are you're not good material for service. Failure to see just how harmful our speech can be reveals a lack of, of maturity and a lack of discernment. So again, a persistent problem with harmful speech disqualifies a person just like drugs and alcohol or immorality. And so in verse 12, it says, deacons must be the husbands of one wife. So let me pause for a moment and go back to that passage. Does that mean that I believe, based on this passage, that women can serve in the office of server? The answer is yes. What does that mean? I think it means that a woman is able, capable gifted and called to do everything that God gifts and calls them to do and should be given a proper expression of that. So when it says deacons must be the husbands of one wife, does that mean the wife of, uh, of, of one husband? Possibly. Literally, the expression means a one-woman man. What in the world does that mean? I'm going to suggest to you that the issue isn't the servant's marital status, but the issues of moral and sexual purity. Some churches have, or at least embrace the view that if you serve in the church and if you've ever been divorced, then you can never serve in that church. You can never serve as the ruling elder. You can never be the pastor. You can never be the deacon. Our church doesn't hold that view. Our church holds the view that sometimes people, even before they get saved, experience failed relationships. We believe as a church that if any person's in Christ, they're a new creation, and the old things have become new. We believe as a church that it's possible that people can experience a horrible and a terrible and a sinful and a broken marriage and that they can be restored, that, that divorce isn't the unforgivable sin. But when it says the husbands of one wife or literally a one woman sort of a guy, again, it speaks of moral and sexual purity. John MacArthur, of all people, writes, quote, a one-woman man is one devoted to his wife, maintaining singular devotion, affection, sexual purity, in both thought and deed. To violate this is to forfeit blamelessness and no longer be above reproach, unquote. And I think that that's exactly right. And so then here are the righteous results. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
pause for a minute again. You might think, wait a minute. Why are there such strict standards for such a low job? I mean, after all, all, all the deacon does is serve. Well, my, what might seem menial and unattractive to you, God sees very, very differently. You are entrusted with the care and the service of the king's children. Maybe this is not an appropriate illustration, but are you going to leave your children with just anyone? Aren't there minimum standards that you employ when someone is watching your children? And you're God's children. And God cares about you. Those who serve and serve faithfully, serve honorably. They earn a good standing with fellow believers. They recognize and appreciate the service. So the deacon, the server, receives good standing. By the way, that word good standing can also mean record or diploma. So does that mean if you're a server in the church, you get this little piece of paper that says, I'm a server at Calvary CSD? In a way, you kind of do. You get a little tag, and you wear it around your neck. It's supposed to identify you as a server. But according to D.L. Moody, he famously said, we may easily be too big for God to use, but we're never too small. It was William Wordsworth who wrote this verse for children. He said, small service is true service while it lasts. Of humblest friends, bright creature, scorn not one. The daisy by the shadow it casts protects the lingering dewdrop from the sun, unquote. Small service. Large rewards because your souls matter. And the expression great boldness can also mean great assurance. So the honorable and the faithful servant speaks with confidence because what she does is appreciated by the Lord Jesus. What he does, what she does, is appreciated by the Lord Jesus. When you're serving in this church, it is appreciated by the Lord Jesus and me. And I'm hoping the other people who serve here, I hope they look at you. I hope, I hope that I've taken the time to say to each and every one of you, thank you for your service. I'm so grateful for your service. Thank you for making church possible. And so the servant of Jesus can provide help in time of need and strength in time of weakness and cheer in time of deep doubt or ever-increasing despair, guidance in perplexity, peace in trouble, joy in sorrow, power in service. And so... Paul provides much-needed instruction. He says, one, one Bible writer says, there was too much meaningless talk and too little purposeful living. Doubtless the apostle would have endorsed James's plea, 
Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will face a stricter judgment. I am so aware that everything that I say or everything I neglect to say is going to be judged by God. He goes on, he says, Paul knew that a future supply of faithful teachers would only be available with a renewal by faithful believers. So in, in closing, just let me say this. The server, number one, is serious, but full of joy and grace. I mean, there comes a point where you can go, why so serious? Just because you're serious doesn't mean that you can't have fun. Servers' lives should be marked by joy and grace. Serious? Yeah. Sense of humor? Let's hope so. Spurgeon was once approached by a lady in his church, and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I don't appreciate the liberties that you take. And Spurgeon said, you, madam, you have no idea how he's restraining himself. Some of you know me. I have to fight each and every time I speak not to do a whole stand-up comedy routine. <laughs> I literally have to say, no, that's not in the text, Gino, leave it alone. Not double-tongued, two-faced, tail-bearer. Not a person who has one thing to say to your face and another thing to say behind your back. Not addicted to drugs. Not addicted to alcohol. Not addicted to drama, which might cloud your judgment or your reason. Not greedy or preoccupied with the accumulation of wealth. Able to defend the gospel. Know and explain the essential teachings of the gospel. Maintain a clean conscience. A pure conscience. Tested, proven inside the church and in the community at large. Blameless but not sinless. Not having something hanging over your head that would cause harm to the testimony of Jesus or the gospel. A godly wife, well-behaved children, a reputation for purity and honesty in the home and outside of the home. Those of you who serve, thank you. Those of you who want to serve, it's time. It's time to be tested. It's time to let us look at your life. You know, the heart grows by giving out. The head grows <laughs> by taking in. I've devoted my life to give you an understanding of what the Bible says. But I don't want you all to wind up with just a fat head like me. I want you to have a great big heart. And so, 
serve. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we commit this time to you, Lord. Again, I thank you for all of the servers, for their faithfulness. Lord, and I thank you that you're raising up a fresh crop of servers. Lord, I thank you that the men and women who made their way through <laughs> Vacation Bible School so many years ago, ago have grown up to become teachers and leaders in the church and even outside of the church serving on the mission field and serving in other communities all across the world and all across the nation and even in this great city. Lord, I thank you for the privilege, the privilege, the privilege of being able to serve the men and women of God. Lord, I pray that I would tell the truth, that I would tell it in love, and Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who want to serve you and to serve each other. In Jesus' name, amen.